When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum, seeking for Jesus. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me, not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did not eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. Then said they unto him, What shall we do, that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then, that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven, and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. The Gospel of the Lord. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. How much would have to be taken away from you before you would stop following Christ? John 6 is a fascinating study of the psychology of commitment. As you heard last week, John 6 is the, the, the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And again, that's 5,000 men. We're talking probably about 20,000 people or more. But as incredible as that story is, it's just the beginning of this incredible sequence of teachings from Jesus that we will hear today and in following weeks. So really, today's portion of John 6 is simply what happens next after the feeding of the 5,000. Now, not surprisingly, after being miraculously fed by Jesus in the desert, Jesus becomes a lot more popular. Now, he had already amassed quite the following, but now something else has kicked in. Something has kicked into high gear as Jesus flees the scene in the middle of the night. His followers are less passive now and a lot more brazen. They've gotten a taste of the miracles, and they are demanding more. You can tell they're trying to figure out a nice way to demand them, but demand them they are certainly doing. There's even a whiff of desperation in the air, right? In, in the parlance of our times, we call this FOMO, I guess, fear of missing out. 
These are people desperately afraid of missing out on what happens next. So Jesus famously walks on water as they cross the sea. But these people are traversing all the way around the top of the sea, doing whatever they can. The King James had a funny word that I think it said something like shippeth or something. In other words, they're getting in boats. They're trying to figure out and find Jesus and so on and so forth. They had gotten this great bread, right, this great miracle, and they're not going to let this fish off the hook. Pun intended, right? But Jesus is no dummy. He knows what they're up to. He knows that their desire for him is superficial and that their desire for him is firmly rooted in their stomachs. So he begins what we might call a church shrinkage campaign. I propose these to the council many times. They never go for it. I don't know why. Rather than promise gimmicks to grow a shallow audience, Jesus takes things away from his biggest fans. He's not interested in having a massive audience so that the world would believe that through his popularity, he has something to offer. He's not looking for enough people to validate the truthfulness of his claims. No, he reframes what they all had just witnessed to point it to the truer and larger picture of who he is and what he has come to earth to accomplish. So the confrontation, and that really is what this is, it's a confrontation. They're they're trying to be coy. They're, they're, They're just waiting for their moment to get mad at Jesus. But they begin by the crowd asking Jesus, when did you go to the other side? Like, you know, we fell asleep and when we woke up when we were gone, well, what difference does it make? Who cares? They're trying to figure out a way to engage Jesus. When he went there is not the point. Why he left them is what they really want to know. It's clear then that they are already entitled. They feel entitled to the person of Jesus. They believe they already have a claim onto him. It's as if they've sort of sunk their talons into Jesus and they're not going to let him go. They're saying, who are you to leave us? Why didn't you leave us and let us know where you were going? How dare you sneak off when we weren't paying attention? And so often, to be honest, that is how we treat Jesus as well. Jesus, you know, because he is so kind and gracious and sacrificial towards us, we think we own him. In the culture at large, you know, we think we know a little bit about Jesus. We know some of the stories. We're even pretty sure that we like him. And we can come easily uh, to come to believe that we are entitled to his grace and mercy. We're pretty certain You know, that he died for us. I mean, didn't he die for everyone? And we're part of everyone. So Jesus must have died for us too. So we're good, right? We come to believe that we can demand his grace, even that we are owed it. And that kind of superficial thinking, it really gets us into trouble where this rubber really meets the road. Let me give a kind of an example of what this might look like. How do we demand grace? Well, If something bad happens in our life, right, or even if we die, right, and we we, we don't end up at the pearly gates like we believe we are entitled to or we believe that we will, we'll say to Jesus, 
hey, when did you go to the other side? In other words, hey, you didn't do what I thought you were going to do for me. I thought I owned you. I thought you owed me, right? When did you get off leaving me in the lurch? You see, grace is free, but it's not cheap. That's a famous Bonhoeffer quote, right? It cannot be demanded. If we demand grace from God, if we demand it, then it's not grace because grace is a free gift. It can only be given freely. can't be demanded. You can't make God give it to you, right? And yet that's what's happening in John 6. They, they were fed the bread, and now they're demanding it. They're demanding the grace. And they're saying, who are you not to give me grace? And so Jesus has to respond by cutting to the heart of the problem. See, we are in no position to demand that Jesus stay with us, right? That he save us, that he free us, that he heal us. We don't get to make those demands on God. If we could, it wouldn't be grace. God would just be our cosmic errand boy. And so the response to every kind of grace in our lives, it, it ought not to be like those ungrateful crowds in John 6. And when I say grace, I'm not just talking about the forgiveness of sins, but all of the graces in our lives, our wealth, our food, our good weather, our families, our homes, our nice vacations, all of those things, we shouldn't respond to Jesus with more, more, I want more, and how dare you not give it to me when I demand it. Rather, we say, thank you. How may I follow you better? How might I correctly respond to your grace? And I think Jesus agrees with me because instead of answering their pithy little question about when he went to the other side of the sea, he calls out the faulty presupposition in the question. He says, in essence, when did I leave? No, how about why did you not want me to leave? The problem here isn't me. It's not what I did. It's what you want. You want bread. You sought to make me a king so that I would provide you this bread always. But let me strip you of that expectation right now. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Now, of course, it is not bread that we hope for, that uh, we want Jesus to offer us in our own day. Bread's pretty easy to come by. But if we've all read Luther's small catechism when he explains the part of the Lord's Prayer when we ask that we uh, would be given our daily bread, and Luther says, what is daily bread? It's your shoes, it's your clothing, it's your house, it's your food, it's all of these things. It's your church community and your friends and your family. It's anything that makes life easier. We have to be careful then that if we don't get what we want that makes life easier or better, that all of a sudden Jesus is doing us some kind of disservice. We want, for example, cultural or political forces to see things the way that we do. I mean, I want that. We want an entertainment complex that provides good material for my children or a school system that teaches 
my values to my children. Those are all things we want, but we're not entitled to those things. Those are things we need to be offering to our families. We hope for an economy that will benefit us or a body that will never become diseased or broken. But let's not confuse the provision of any of those things with the promises of Jesus. Seek the bread of life is what he tells us. Seek Jesus. Be faithful to Jesus no matter the context. Even in the midst of moral evil or violence or hunger, seek Jesus. Make Jesus the Lord of your life and the Lord of your household. But maybe more than anything else, guard your heart against the evil forces that would drive you away from Jesus. Difficulty or envy or hardship. Whatever the lack of bread may be, don't blame Jesus or blame God. And don't demand signs either. That's the next part of this conversation. Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? This is coming from people who were just fed with five loaves and two fish, right? And they're saying, well, maybe there's another sign that you could do that we would really believe this time, right? If the feeding of the 5,000 isn't enough, then nothing will ever be enough. How sad is it that we are a show-me people? I never knew what Missouri, you know, the, the show-me state meant. I, I, guess they're, I guess they're saying talk is cheap, right? You got to show me. That's not how we ought to be with God. Indeed, this would be a pretty good text if one wanted to answer the charismatic movement, with, which insists on healings or tongues as being of the Spirit. There are many people who, who put Christians under a burden of saying, if you can't speak in tongues, you don't have the Holy Spirit. We say, <clears throat> when you're baptized, you receive the Holy Spirit. So don't dare tell me if I have to speak in tongues. And so this would be a, a good text that we might reference and say, quit looking for signs. Seek the bread of life. For the moment that we demand a sign that meets our satisfaction, we have stopped worshiping God and started to worship an idol. This part of the conversation ends with Jesus saying that bread from heaven will give life to the world. Well, so naturally, his hearers say, oh, well, we want that bread. Sure, sounds good. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. All of John 6 is pointing back to Jesus. And the crowd is constantly trying to pull it away from Jesus, and he's constantly pointing to himself. Some in the crowd were certainly satisfied with that answer, but many were not. And so the crowd gets smaller and smaller as Jesus pushes them away. So the question that I began with, and I'll ask it again now, is how much would have to be taken away from you before you would stop following Christ? If we assume that to truly and really follow Christ will not involve Jesus telling us no from time to time, we are sadly mistaken and fooling ourselves. If and when Jesus goes to the proverbial other side without doing for us what we demand, the correct response is not, how dare you, but rather, how may I? And what Jesus promises is that for those who will be content with himself and his person and his work, 
He will give us everything we need, for he is the bread of life. Amen. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. During a recent podcast interview, a guest uh, instructed me about a concept called Immortality Projects. Clay Jones is the author of a book called Immortal, and it's a book about death and how we fear it and what drives us uh, away from thinking about it, and the difference that the Christian message makes in the face of death. These immortality projects, sometimes they're entirely normal and we even engage in them, and sometimes they are extreme attempts to either deny death or keep it at bay for as long as possible. We should not be surprised at these projects. Perhaps you have noticed that we do not live in a world where adults can maturely deal with death anymore. I don't mean that we're supposed to all be stoic about it and never grieve those who die, uh, but we are definitely doing everything we can to pretend it doesn't exist. And for the truly sad and desperate, immortality projects, like living in a simulated world, or cryogenically freezing yourself with the hopes that medical technology can revive you one day. These are really seen by some people as real hopes of eternal life. It seems that, you know, rather than trusting in the old-fashioned ways of, you know, God existing, that he sent his son to die for the world, that those who trust in Jesus Christ can have eternal life, which he clearly promises in our gospel lesson this morning, no, rather they would try to risk uploading their, their conscience in some way to a server, probably controlled by Facebook or Amazon, trusting that they will not pull the plug on you uh, once they have spent all of your life savings. For the record, I don't believe that you can pull yourself out of here, all right, your conscience, your essence, your being, your nature, uh, and put it onto some kind of computer server, but even if they could, and they'll probably start to promise that in about five or ten years, so get your checkbooks ready, don't do it, all right? Just, uh, just die and go to heaven already, okay? But there are other immortality projects as well that people will be tempted towards. I think of three in particular. One is um, to be immortalized, as we say, on the silver screen. That's, that's one of the draws to be a, an actor or an actress, isn't it? Uh, that you'll live on forever. Um, I remember years ago I visited with uh, an older gentleman in a nursing home. He, he wasn't a member of our church. He was just someone that appreciated visits, and I got to know him a little bit. And it wasn't long after we visited that he told me that in the 1950s he had been in a movie. It was one of those terrible uh, 1950s alien space invader movies, and uh, he played a guy who was eating in a cafe or a diner, and the aliens came, and he tried to run away in his car or something. Well, sure enough, back when uh, Netflix 
mail DVDs. I guess they still do that. Anyway, uh, they had that movie, and, and I ordered it, and I watched it, and sure enough, there, there he was, right there, just as he said, he had been immortalized. He lives on forever in that uh, movie, terrible as it was. A second immortality project is to write a book. A lot of people think if you, know, you write a book, you'll sort of live on forever. Maybe no one will read it. That's about how many people read most books, you know, about five people probably on average. But hey, your name will forever be listed in the Library of Congress, uh, so long as that survives. And then there's having children. Now this is probably the best of all the immortality projects. We must recognize, though, why we choose to have children, what we hope to accomplish in having them. Do we want to have children to increase our joy, to sacrificially love them, to help them and encourage them to grow into their unique gifts and abilities in their service to the world? Or do we want to have children who are our mini-me's, who will do everything that we did and, and for all the same reasons? Now, some people certainly think of their children that way, right? And there is some line as a parent, some invisible line, I'm not sure where it is, but on one side of the line is the healthy, normal indoctrination of our children. Right? You will believe the things that I, I believe in the faith, right? That's why we bring our children to church. Right? We want them to believe the important things and see the world we do. And then on the other side of that line, the unhealthy one, is where we ignore the unique value of our children and they just become our narcissistic projects. And maybe that is why David is so spectacularly sad at the death of his son Absalom. Maybe David hoped that Absalom would be his immortality project, that the kingdom promised to David would continue on through his son Absalom. Now, our reading today from 2 Samuel, it's, it has all, we have already skipped over a tremendous amount of information uh, in 2 Samuel to get to this point. If you're not familiar with this story, it, it would have read sort of out of thin air. But here's what we need to know about Absalom and his death. David was not just mourning a regular old death of a child, which is certainly tragic enough. That's not what's going on in this story. Absalom, you see, is not a good guy. He is a usurper. He uh, invaded, essentially, Jerusalem. He forced David out of Jerusalem to go into hiding. David, for years, had set himself up as a judge already for the people of Israel. He had uh, told the people of Israel, hey, if you make me king, you'll get a lot of benefits from it. You know, my old man, man, he's getting old. You, you, you know, he, he, his days are numbered. I'm going to be the king. Not a good guy at all. And so when you get this, what I think is a humorous story, it's a, it's a really embarrassing story, this is what happens to usurpers, right? You're riding your donkey, and, and you get your head caught in a tree, right? And then your donkey keeps going. That's what the Bible tells us about Absalom. I mean, this is a really embarrassing way to go, right? And he's just a sitting duck, you know, for David's, uh, David's men, and ten people pierce him, with a sword. And, and David, he asks, is it well with Absalom? 
and they're forced to tell him, no, it's not, it's not well. You, you don't want this to happen to even your worst enemy. This is really bad. And what does David do? He would have had every right to rejoice. He would have had every right to, to, to say, I can now go back to my throne. I can go back safely to Jerusalem. I can go back to being a king. But that's not what happens. He, he says, he wails, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. See, something very deep inside of David died at that moment. And I think it was all of the hopes and the dreams that David had poured into his son for all of those years. The visions of his son Absalom being the continuation of his monarchy. He would be the virtuous and wise ruler of Israel, just as God promised he would provide. But all of those hopes died with Absalom, hopes that David kept alive, even while Absalom was trying to kill him. But so long as Absalom was alive, you see, and this is how we are, right? Even when it's a dead-end situation, something we know we should give up on, we'll often hope, oh, the best can still come of this. As long as Absalom was alive, there was some hope for repentance, some hope for reconciliation. But now that Absalom was dead, there was no going back. Part of David's own immortality died that day, part of himself. Now Solomon, we know, another of David's sons, did end up following uh, David on his throne. And we know that Solomon was renowned for his wisdom. He wrote several books uh, of the Bible and much of the Proverbs. But Solomon's conflicting loyalties Oh, and eventually, remember, he had over 700 wives and concubines. That tends to distract a person. Uh, and that eventually led to a divided kingdom, a weak nation, uh, and the exile of the Hebrew people after they were uh, unable to defend themselves against the invading Assyrians and, and uh, Babylonians. But you see, David did not know how God would redeem his people and carry on his lineage. He did not know that his own immortality project would continue through his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson, Joseph, Jesus' adoptive father. Yes, the real and true work of salvation for Israel would go through Jesus, and not in the way that even the people at the time of Jesus thought. Which brings us to John 6. Now, somewhat buried between in the John 6, there's the story of the feeding of the 5,000, which I mentioned is about probably 20, 25,000 people, because 5,000 is only men. Well, you have the feeding of the 5,000, and then you have Jesus walking on water. Okay, those are stories we know well. Well, buried in between those two stories is this, this line. Well, they sought to make Jesus king by force. Well, that probably explains why Jesus hightailed it out of there in the middle of the night. Uh, that can be a very volatile, dangerous situation, and, and the theological reason it was not time yet for Jesus' true nature to be revealed. That is revealed not uh, by usurping Herod uh, or, or, Pi or Pilate, but by dying on a cross. But anyway, this is a very volatile situation, and the crowds were anxious uh, for a David-like 
messianic king. They wanted him to walk through that door, and they thought that they had found him when Jesus multiplied the loaves and, 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 and provided for the people. So they wanted to make him king. But Jesus points again and again and again to himself. As John 6 goes on, you see he keeps pointing back to himself in more and more what we might call extreme language. Right? He, he, he says, I'm the bread of life. You have to eat of my flesh if you will have any part of me. And notice that the harshest words in our gospel reading this morning were for the Jews. Now, this is a phrase when John says it, he's really talking about the leadership of the Jews or those who are hanging on to these uh, ancient customs that they ought to let go. It's not every Jewish person in existence. And those Jews, you see, they were very influential and they believed it would be their history and their lineage and their ethnicity that would save them. They were the chosen people of God. And so that is why they hearken back to Moses and the manna. They're saying, hey, we're part of these people. We're part of that covenant. So we should be good, right? And that's when Jesus says, no, the, the manna in the wilderness, it wasn't about your ethnicity. It's about me. I am the bread of life. Moses and the manna, that points to me. I am the fulfillment of all of those things. And now, the salvation of Israel is not coming through another Davidic-style immortality project, right, to make Israel great again. But Jesus says, I am for all people. I am food for the world, black or white or brown or rich or poor or male or female. The only requirement, in fact, is that the candidate for salvation must be an acknowledged and repentant sinner. That's a very different message from, hey, we're the entitled people, right? And so by trusting in Christ, those who still chose to follow Jesus and those of us who are gathered here this morning, we are part of a true immortality project. We have been promised the bread of life. We have been given credit for the very person and work of Jesus. Immortality is ours. Eternal life is ours. Resurrection is ours. Defeat of death and disease is ours. The kingly line of David was not lost with the death of Absalom. It carried on until Jesus fulfilled the work of God, beginning with the people of Israel, but extending to everyone the world over. So, David, we hear your cries, and we see your tears. But Absalom was not the fulfillment of God's promises. Jesus was. David knows that now. Do we? Amen.